Our Heavenly Father, we are drawn to you by your Spirit in this place once a week. And Father, you've called us here because this is one opportunity that you would use to guide us into the life of of righteousness that you have called us all to lead. This is an opportunity for you to build us up in the walk that we endeavor to make with you. This is where we learn, Father, about you. This is where we are called to be accountable to our brothers and sisters. This is where we can pray. Father, these are, these are the reasons we gather here. But ultimately, Father, they're all a means to an end. And that end, Father, is to serve you and to serve you in all respects, to serve you in the way we live our life. And I do thank you, Father, that Oak Hill Bible Church stands as a testimony to, to the importance of your word and to the necessity of prayer to the encouragement that comes from fellowship and in worship, Father. We thank you for the opportunity to be part of a small fellowship that is centered in your will. And we ask, Father, that the teaching today, though it's coming through the mouth of a man and has been prepared in our, in our strength, but, Father, it is ultimately delivered in yours. And it must be according to your will and your word, Father, or it has no purpose and meaning. And so we, we do appeal, Father, to the Spirit now that he would speak to each of us. We, pay, we pray, Father, that, that the words that have been prepared for us in the letter that James wrote so many centuries ago, that, that they would be as if they were written to us here today in this very moment, so that we may hear them in the way they were intended and take them to heart. We pray, Father, we would be those who would do the word, not merely hear it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we ended last week right at the end of chapter 4. And there was a verse I said I would hold off until we reached this week. We would talk this week about the final verse in chapter 4 as an entry into chapter 5. And chapter 4 as a whole was this discussion on speech and on quarrels and conflict. And then it gave way at the very end to a warning. Remember the warning to believers in this church, these Jewish Christians. I think you could say that there is a truth to the fact that sometimes we're blind to God's will but, but sometimes we have a different problem. It reminds me, as I thought about the lesson of a story I heard of, of a man, an older man who was retired and golfed a lot. And as he went out to play golf, he found himself troubled by the fact that at his advanced age, he couldn't see very well anymore. And he would hit the ball, but he couldn't figure out where it went. And because he couldn't see it, he couldn't find it. And his wife was hearing him complain and lament about this. And his wife said, well, why don't you take your friend, Harry? He's pretty good with eyesight and and the golfer said Harry the guy's older than I am he's 85 years old and his wife said well yes but his eyesight's nearly perfect and the gentleman thought well you're right let's give it a shot so he takes Harry out to the course with him on the next time out and Harry stands behind him in the tee box as the man tees off Harry's watching and notices exactly where the ball goes keeps a, a firm bead on it and the golfer says so you know where it is yep see it perfect So they get in the cart and they're driving away from the tee box and the golfer says, all right, where is it? And Harry says, I don't know, I forgot. (laughs) Sometimes the problem is what we see. Sometimes the problem is what we remember or pay attention to, right? James ended the fourth chapter with one verse that in some ways sums up that chapter, maybe even the letter as a whole. He says in verse 17, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him... It is sin. So James has in this chapter 
ended with a warning. Remember in verse 13 it said, come now. That was the opening words that marked the warning. And then we'll see at the beginning of chapter 5, those same words repeated, come now. That will mark a second warning. The first one was to believers. And he said to these people that they should not be arrogant. This is to the church now, to those in the faith. Don't be arrogant in deciding your plans. Don't, don't go forward in life, making plans for your life, making daily decisions on what to do and how to do it without consulting God first. And if we are not in the habit of asking God for that direction, for that counsel before we make our plans, in a sense we're flying blind. We're forgetting, as James says, we have a very short time on this earth. And in that very short time, if we live in that short time thinking we are the masters of our own universe and of our own destiny, we have only fooled ourselves. We're arrogant. We're boastful, he says. And we're living in this independent, prideful way, which is contrary to what, as a Christian, we should be seeking after, which is to be dependent on God, to lean on him and live according to his desires. And that traces all the way back to the chapter to explain why there were quarrels and, con- and uh, contentions in this church Or in any church, it's because we have these worldly pursuits that drive our decision-making and we're not consulting God for his desires. And God delights to frustrate the Christian who decides they're going to do their own thing. That was the summation of the chapter. James now in verse 17 says, It is a sin to lead our lives without consulting God's will. That may not have been the words you saw on the page, but that's inherent, that's embedded into the concept. He's saying... To the one who knows the right thing to do. Well, how did they come to know it? Well, fundamentally, it was because they sought God's counsel, whether in his word or whether it was brought to them through the revelation of the spirit in their prayer life or through the the good counsel of a godly brother or sister in the faith or in some manner, God delivered to that person what was the right thing to do. And what is the right thing to do in all cases? God's will. In the, in the context of some decision, in the specifics of some situation, what is the right thing to do? Whatever God's will is for that situation. Now, to the one who knows that will and does not do it, by definition, that is sin. To the one who knows the right thing to do and acts in a different way than God directs, that is sin. It's a sin of omission. We know what sins of commission are, usually, to do the wrong thing. But God has said through his word in this verse that doing nothing in light of what God has directed you to do is sin because it's contrary to his will. I think of the young rich ruler who confronted Christ at one point in the Gospels and asked what he must do if he were to inherit eternal life or to inherit the kingdom. And there was some dialogue, if you remember, to begin. But eventually, at the end of their discussion, Jesus puts a test before the man and says, sell all that you have and follow me. It's not the recipe for salvation, as you understood the story. Perhaps you remember it when we studied it in Luke. It was, in fact, a test. It was Jesus' opportunity to pierce the man's heart and demonstrate for his own sake that all his piousness at trying to follow the law and the rules of life didn't cut to the issue at hand. The issue is, are you willing to hear God's will and follow it? Are you willing to be obedient to God's will or not? And if you are not then you are sinning. And what was the young rich ruler's response to that challenge, to that test? Scripture says he walked away sad. He sinned by omission. He did not do what Christ said was God's will for him. And so he sins. One of the challenges I find in young Christians, when I say young, I mean new believers, is the concept that the believer is not under the law. 
And by law, I'm speaking specifically about the law of Moses, the law in the Old Testament, to include, by the way, the Ten Commandments. That is all the law. It is all the one law. It's not broken up in Scripture. As James says himself, you violate one law, you've broken them all. There is no division of the law. We've heard that perhaps in one circle or another. But the Scriptures themselves never allude to any division in the law. It is all or none. You're under it or you're not. And Paul in Romans and in other letters as well makes utterly clear that we are not under law. We have died to the law. And for a new believer, the challenge in that is, what do you mean I'm not under the law? That means I can do anything I want? Well, Most people who ask that question already know the answer, don't they? What they're challenged by is, where do I go to know what is right? They know they can't do just anything they want. There's nothing inside them that tells them they can steal, murder, commit adultery. Those things are not excusable, and they know it. But where do you go to know what is right and wrong if the law, as it was given to Moses, is no longer the the standard by which we are being judged? Well, where I send that believer when I'm trying to help them with that question is to the letter of James. First to the earlier issue we already studied, which is when James says we are under a law. We are not without law. We are under a law. It is a different law than the one that was prescribed for the, for the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. It is a greater law. It is the royal law or the law of liberty, a law of Christ, Paul calls it. And we've already explained what that law is, the two parts and how it is all-encompassing. And then I take them to this verse in chapter 4, the one we just read. Because... Hand in hand with the arrival of this royal law that we would love our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that law that now governs us, where do I go to understand what it means in a given context? And James says in verse 17, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. That concept, that verse combined with the royal law is such a powerful directive to how we should live our life, that you never escape it, unlike the law that Moses had, which only talked about a handful of circumstances in life and was silent on many others. Now we have a law that's not silent ever. Where under the law of Moses, there was no directive with respect to how much I could drink or whether I should smoke or how I should treat somebody as a neighbor or how I should do some, something in a very subtle sense. Now I have the direction that Scripture has given me about love being the driving force, about honoring God being the ultimate uh, commandment, and the awareness that the Spirit Himself will drive us in ways that will reveal God's will in a given context. And then it becomes incumbent upon us to listen and to do what we're told. This, this two-part law talks to new issues, issues that were never addressed in the law of Moses. It talks to degrees Do you understand that under these constraints, under this kind of a law of love, what might be an appropriate level of of, of drinking, for example, to use one of the more common and and contentious issues within the church, how much alcohol is too much? We know drunkenness is off the table. We know that's wrong. But is any alcohol okay? Is it okay in some circumstances? Shouldn't have it when we have a church function? Only have it when we're with our buddies at the ball game? And when when and how and where? And the law that that Moses gave us did not address those things. The law that Jesus himself directed us to says that for person A, one drink might be too many. For person B, two drinks might be too many. And for each of those people, the law written on their heart drives their behavior. And if one of those people were to say, here's what should be true for all people, they've taken the law written on their heart and written it on stone again and tried to hand it to somebody else, which is not the royal law. That's what makes our Christian walk so challenging We look for unanimity of thought. We want everyone to do it exactly the same way. And if they don't, somebody's wrong. And so we make rules to replace what God took away 
And we appoint it to everyone and we say, here's what your rule needs to be because we're not all doing it the same way somebody's wrong. Tithing is another great example. There's no New Testament requirement to tithe. That's an Old Testament requirement. It's in the law. It's not found in the New Testament. What's found in the New Testament is give generously as the Lord leads. If the Lord leads you to give nothing for a given month, don't give anything. If he leads you to give half your paycheck, then 10% ain't enough. The Lord will take care of those issues in your life. The question is, are we listening? Or like the golfer, do we hear it one moment and then conveniently forget it or, or don't give attention to it in another? James has said to the church as he gave that warning, acknowledge God's authority in your life and let him direct and guide you. He says, when you get the answer, when you know the right thing and you don't do it, you cannot turn to him and say, well, I just missed it. But then James gives this warning to a second group, to the unbelievers, the Jewish unbelievers who would hear this letter in his day. And it begins in the same way with the words, come now. Let's look at the verses that begin chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten. I'm sorry, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxurious, luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. I said at the uh, outset here that this warning is spoken to the unbelieving Jews in the early Christian church. And are you surprised that James would include a warning in a letter written to the churches in the diaspora, a, a warning directed to unbelievers? Does that strike you as a bit odd that he would include even a statement to them at all? I mean, why did he feel the need to address unbelievers in a letter written to the church? How did he expect them to hear the message? Well, remember, these letters were delivered to a city of people. In the day that this letter was written, you had the city and the church that was in that city. And it would meet in various locations, but it didn't perceive itself to be different groups. Those cities then became the churches. And they would meet sometimes in different groups around the city. It's an interesting mindset, isn't it? We don't think like that anymore, do we? Do you think of yourself as part of the Church of Austin? In their day, a church began somewhere in the city, spread throughout the city, and it was never disunited. It was never separated from itself. That's how, by the way, Paul was able to enforce church discipline by sending a single letter to a single city, commanding that a certain person be put out of fellowship. The reason that was an effective discipline was that that person had nowhere else to go. It's not like they would get mad at the pastor in church A and just drive down the street and go to church B. And say, well, I don't have to deal with that jerk. I can go to this church. Or I don't like the way they do things over there. I'm going to go to this church. No, wherever they went in the city, that was the church. And the church had been directed to keep that person out of fellowship as a means of discipline. That was real discipline. They had nowhere to go. And in that world, particularly as persecution broke out, if you didn't have the strength and the protection of the body in the face of persecution, you were thrown to the wolves, literally. A very effective form of discipline, isn't it? We lack that in some respects today, but... Going back to the text, those cities received the letter. So James wrote letters, or a letter in this case, and he distributed it to a series of churches that represented a series of cities. 
the church, the letter would go into the city. It would be copied multiple times, distributed across the body of believers in that city. And then copies would be handed to couriers who would take them to the next city. We call that an encyclical letter because it went through a cycle or a circle of cities. These are encyclical letters. And along the way, these letters would be read aloud to the various churches and often in public forums. And you know what happens when you have somebody show up into town. Somebody rides into town with a letter, like a courier. In this day, they didn't have horses as often. They were walking. But they'd get into town. They'd say, we have a letter from the Apostle James. We have a letter from the Apostle James. A crowd would form. The church would assemble. And then along the way, curious onlookers would also come along and listen to find out what's going on. And in particular, Jewish leaders from the local synagogue would get particularly interested in these letters because they were looking for some cause perhaps to accuse the church or to discount what was being said. They had evil motives and they would come along to listen. These are the people James anticipated are listening. These are the men he wants to talk to in this warning. Think of them as the same as the Pharisees who hounded Jesus in his day. And to these people, he addresses them first as saying, You rich. Rich here means rich in every sense of the word. Financially wealthy, yes, but wealthy in power and in knowledge and in status and in pride. These are men who think well of themselves. Keeping in mind the theme here that he's in at this point in the letter, people who are self-dependent, self-righteous, men who think well of themselves and don't have any dependence on God. They were men who were corrupt, self-serving, and elite who used their position of power to take advantage of those under their charge. They were hostile to the Jews and they were hostile to Christians. So James tells this corrupt, evil group, you haven't escaped God's notice. James says, you should be howling and weeping because of the misery that is coming upon you for your sin. He says, your riches will be rotted, your garments moth-eaten. You get the point, right? The things they have come to rely on in the world, that they have sought after, that they view as their value in this world, will be the things that will testify against them, James says. Witness against them. And I love the line. He says, of all the stupidity, you are the ones who have chosen to store up treasure on earth in the earth's last days. How ironic. I think of the Titanic. What if when you heard that the Titanic had hit an iceberg and was sinking in those last two hours or so that it was above water, what if you had spent that time running around the deck and into the staterooms of the, of the ship, looting as much of the treasury as you could find from the passengers who were frantically diving into the lifeboats and so on? What if you spent your last two hours on the boat doing that? It'd be suicide, right? Never mind the fact that it's absurd to even think about doing that. There's a saying I've heard in business when somebody is trying to Ignore the obvious that the ship is going down and they're busy doing day-to-day things in the face of, a, of an impending calamity. We talk about it as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You've heard that phrase maybe? It's exactly the same point, only with a spiritual dimension that makes it far more serious. These are people who in the last days, literally, in the age that God has appointed for this earth, it is coming to a close. In the last days of this age, we're busy storing up treasure that we can't Hold, because when the place goes, the stuff goes, right? You can't take it with you. And he gives an example of how these leaders have obtained their wealth. He says, first, they cheated day laborers. In that culture, a day laborer was literally a day laborer, meaning they started every day penniless. They hoped to be hired for the day. They went and worked somebody's field for the day. At the end of the day, they expected to be paid. What they obtained in that one day's pay was enough money to feed themselves and their family, perhaps take care of a few other necessities and get them through the next day. Literally, this is living 
paycheck to paycheck, only your paychecks are daily. That's the life of a day laborer in this culture. And there were many people who earned their living that way. And then a man like those mentioned here in this warning, who had wealth and had means and had land that needed work, would hire one of these day laborers, bring them into the field for a day, as, as it says here in the text. Then at the end of the day, they would find some technicality on which to invalidate their work and refuse to pay them at the end of the day. Now, the real sin of that, of course, is not just the cheating of these people. It's that they have lost the chance to have a wage on that day. And they are now without any hope for a whole nother day, without food, without any hope for any kind of income. It's the worst kind of abuse of power. And James says, the men you've cheated in this way, they're going to cry out against you in injustice. And God, the Lord of Saboeth, hears them. That word Saboeth means host. It's a reference to God's role as the commander of the hosts of heaven, the commander of the armies of heaven. It's an emphasis on the fact that God has the means and the desire to bring justice and retribution on behalf of these people. You're annoying the host of heaven. You're making him upset at you for what you're doing to his people. Can you imagine what kind of action he's prepared to take against you? And that's why James says you need to be thinking seriously about what's coming in your life. And then to top it off, James ends by saying they have condemned and they have put to death the righteous men who did not resist their injustice. Now, this is probably a double reference. And by that I mean James is probably meaning one thing but alluding to another thing at the same time. He's first referring to the people that were cheated, the specific day laborers who went to work, did what they were supposed to do, came back to him, expected to be paid, got cheated, and then they could do nothing more than just walk away. But I think it also refers to the way the Jewish leadership treated Christ. Remember the Pharisees as they condemned Christ, an innocent man, a righteous man, and he went to the cross like a lamb led to slaughter, never even speaking. He is the ultimate picture of someone who submits to God's authority in the face of injustice and yet still obeys to the point of death. James's warning offers them no hope. Did you notice that? I don't hear anywhere in James's warning any opportunity for redemption or repentance. And that is, in fact, in keeping with Jesus's own declaration against this very generation, the ones who would have received the letter in James's day, those who were in the generation who rejected the Messiah. You remember in the Luke study, we talked about the unforgivable sin, the often misunderstood quote out of the Gospels that people turn to mean something more general when Jesus spoke it in a very specific context. We generally believe it means the sin of rejecting Christ. Well, by definition, rejecting Christ means you are in your sin. So it's not really the sense of what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that the unforgivable sin is rejecting Christ. You are already in your sin, and if you do not accept him, that never changes. There's no additional sin for rejecting Christ. You're just in your sin. You're already condemned by the nature of who you are as a sinner. Now, the issue was, if you remember in Luke, the specific offense that the nation of Israel perpetrated against Christ through their leadership when they knew him to be Christ, they called him the son of David, and then when their leadership accused him of being Beelzebub, the devil, they accepted that testimony. And in the face of clear evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, evidence that was made possible through the work of the Holy Spirit, they refused to believe what they saw and knew and accepted the testimony of their leaders in place of the truth. And in so doing, they committed the unforgivable sin. Why was it unforgivable? Because to hear Christ and see Christ demonstrate the proof of his claims in the flesh means there can be no greater testimony. No one can come along later 
to that group who had the privilege of seeing the Messiah in the flesh and witness to that group about the truth of the Messiah and expect that second-hand witness to be greater than the first-hand witness that was made available through Christ. They have done what only the generation of Israel in that day could do, rejected Christ to his face. And that is unforgivable. God never gives that generation of Israel a second chance. There's no more faith. There is only the remnant, as Paul explains it. Those that were in that generation, Jesus says this, Luke 11:29. he says, this is in the same chapter, the same context as the unforgivable sin. 11.29, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as, sign, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus was saying, I am greater than the prophets. I'm greater than the secondhand messengers. And when they reject the greater, they will not be given opportunity to receive the lesser. That's only true for that generation. That generation saw the judgment temporally when A.D. 70 came and the city was destroyed. And apart from the remnant that God has spared, as Paul describes in Romans, Israel suffered the penalty of this judgment. Not to their own destruction, but to the destruction of this generation. And that generation is reflected in James's letter as well. The evil Jewish leadership continually denying Christ as the Messiah and undermining the authority of the church among the Jewish people. Now, how would we approach this today? Are we to take the letter as James writes it today and make the same application today to those who are unbelievers around us? Well, clearly not. We are not the same generation. What James has to say for us out of this warning is more general. What is our response to someone who in their unbelief does to us what these people, these, these apparent rich rulers were doing to those in the faith in their day? When we see an injustice take place, I'm thinking of the day laborer again, the one who would come in from the field and expect to be paid and then get nothing. What is our reaction in that moment? It would be natural for us to be against them in some form, right? To either speak against them, criticize them to their face or to others, rise up against them in some way, demand something by force. In our context today, what would we do? Take them to court? Call the cops? Those are legal. Some would argue appropriate. Biblically, though, what should we do? Well, do you notice James's response? James says those who were persecuted by these evil leaders did not resist. And if Christ becomes our comparison, then you could argue did not resist to death. And he says in their response, they earned praise in Scripture. In Romans 12, you'll hear this. Paul says in Romans 12, 17, something very similar. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, Paul talks about some slightly different things, and I don't want to make it appear as though I think they are exactly on the same point. It's a little different, subtly different, but they hit on some similar points as well. But Paul, in a sense, affirms James's teaching because he says our Christian testimony requires we work to remain at peace with all men so far as it depends on us. Now, that means that at the point when someone forces a conflict upon us, we cannot avoid it at that point. It has been placed in our lap. The question is, how do we respond to that conflict? And as far as it can depend on us, we will minimize the conflict. We will look for ways to avoid taking any kind of revenge. That doesn't mean we do it so long as they're treating us right. And then when they stop treating us right, all bets are off. We can do whatever we want. The idea that as long as someone else follows all the rules, I'll follow all the rules. As soon as you do the wrong thing, well, now I have the right to respond. That's the way the world works. That is the world's rule. That's not the biblical rule. We are to leave revenge to God or more specifically leave room for the wrath of God. And trust that he will bring it about. Because we have to understand the true revenge, the true justice we all want in the world that we live in today won't actually happen in this world. It doesn't. Even if we think we've achieved some measure of revenge, even if we take them to court, sue the pants off them, get what we wanted in the beginning and leave the court a victor, we didn't actually get any revenge. I mean, it feels good to our flesh, but in reality, from an eternal point of view, what did we just do? We ensured that more of our treasure stayed with us till the end. We ensured that that our property line was more in keeping with where we thought it should be so that the property, when it burns up, will have our line in the right place. I mean, what did we achieve in eternal terms when we win these arguments? Are they more likely to believe the gospel because we won in court? If you think about it in an eternal point of view, what have we achieved even when we win? Because even though we may win in the moment, we may be risking something in eternity. Are we prepared to let retribution or revenge be totally within God's control, even if it means we don't see it happen in this life? I love the line that Paul uses from quoting from the Old Testament when he says, when you're facing this person who's doing the wrong thing by you, the day laborer who's cheated, for example, or in some context, we face that moment of injustice. Paul says, give him a drink. Give him food. Or more generally, put grace back in their plate. Do something for them that they're not expecting. It may win them over. He doesn't say that, but I think that's implied. But if it doesn't, at the very least, it heaps coals on their head. You stack the deck against them. You could say it's an act of faith to withhold retribution. It is an act of faith to say to yourself, I'm not going to take the opportunity I feel I deserve and I have at at my disposal. I'm going to leave it with God. James addresses the sins of the rich and the corrupt leaders here who persecuted the faith. And then he moves forward in verse 7 and says, what do we do to respond? Look at what he says next and see if it does not mirror Paul's letter and what I'm saying generally. Look at what James says next, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets to the early, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, Be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So James clearly moves from talking to the unbeliever to talking now again to the believer. And he says, 
to the believer, to the Christian. Here's what I want you to do in response to the injustice of these men. Be patient. And the word there in the Greek, makrothumeo, it literally means long-tempered or delaying in taking any action. Just, just hold off your action a little while. Don't get trigger happy. Just wait. Have an attitude that looks forward to the return of the Lord, which will happen at our rapture. And he uses the analogy of a farmer who waits patiently for this harvest to come in. What he's referring to there is the way that in that world, in the Palestinian region, you'd have early rains in the spring, you'd have a hot, dry summer, and then you'd have late rains right before harvest. And to the farmer who looks at his situation midsummer and says, you know, we had all that good rain earlier, now it's getting pretty dry, I don't know how long I can wait before I harvest. If I wait too long, the sun's going to kill everything. I need to take matters into my own hands. I'll have to get this harvest out of the field early. Come on, boys, let's start taking the harvest now while we still got a chance to save something. And James says the smart, patient farmer, he knows the pattern. He knows how it works. And he's saying to himself, I can hold out a little longer, and when those late rains come, I'll get the last bit of growth out of my harvest, and then after those late rains, I know I can take the harvest. It's an attitude of saying, don't rush the harvest. And for us, that means don't rush the justice. Don't say to ourselves, we have to fix all these problems that God brings before us in this daily walk in order to be made whole, in order to feel like we're getting what we deserve. He's saying, God's coming through Christ in in his return, and then you will see true justice. Rushing it in the short term is not the way to go. And James says what you should be doing, what we should be doing if we're busy or we're looking to be busy in this time, is strengthen hearts. And by that I think he means very clearly remind ourselves and each other of the coming of the Lord so that we understand it's not that far off keeping an eternal perspective. I mean, honestly, if you had the point of view that tomorrow is the rapture, and biblically it can be any day, it could have been any day in James's day. It could be any day today. There is no biblical prerequisite for the rapture. And if you think like that, if we think like that, would you be willing to wait a day? If you have um, somebody at work, a boss, a coworker, who undermines you and speaks badly about you and doesn't trust your work and is always on your, on your case, can you wait a day before you do something about that? The neighbor who's... The things that just irk us and we want to do something about it and we got all kinds of creative ideas on how we can take care of those problems, don't we? From complaining to the, can you be patient one day? And of course, you know what I'm going to say when you get to that next day, don't you? (laughs) That wasn't the day of the rapture. So be it. Can you wait one more day? What you're doing, and what I think Scripture is compelling us to do at that point, what you're doing is you're acting in faith, knowing God's in control of these circumstances, and you're not going to let the world get the better of you. Secondly, you're leaving room for the wrath of God, which is the biblical principle that God himself is our justice, and we will not pretend we are him and try to do what he alone has appointed for himself to do, that is to be our defender. And then number three, we are giving opportunity for the Spirit to use our response, which is different than the world's, to open a door for conversation about the gospel. And I don't want to minimize that last one. If you're hearing in my words this morning a kind of disinterest in the way our patience can be useful to bringing men and women to faith, please don't hear that at all. It's so often the case that when we act differently than the world, that is the opening that God will use to bring faith. But James's concern in this letter at this stage of the letter has not been 
on how we can take these circumstances and use them to turn people to faith. He's not saying that's not possible. He's just not focusing on that issue. What he is focusing on is the way we ourselves become like God or judges in that sense and take matters into our own hands. And in so doing, we start being independent again. We start living like we're our own people, our own deciders, our own judges, and we stop leaning on God and listening to his will. That's the central issue of the text in this chapter. Following God's will or trying to follow your own. And in matters of revenge, there's probably no more powerful thing in life than the desire to take revenge and get justice that will draw us off leaning on God. There is nothing more powerful than that to pull us off God's path. Leave room for the wrath of God. Be patient. He offers an example for us to follow in living out this command. In verse 10, he says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I love it when Scripture goes to the ultimate examples when it feels the need to convict us. Here are the prophets and in particular the example of Job. People who, if we're ever in doubt about whether we should take justice or whether that's the right thing to do or how much is, is enough, think about what the prophets endured Righteous men called by God, speaking to a disobedient Israel, what were they willing to suffer without taking their own revenge? The New Testament gives us a wonderful summary of what their lives were like in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just read a few verses. If you know the chapter, it's such a famous one for what it says about men of faith. But listen to what it has to say about these prophets particularly. Verse 32, the writer says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured not accepting their release. Do you hear that? Not even accepting the offer of release because of the strings that were attached to those offers. And it goes on, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Listen to that one verse and consider it in our context. They had an opportunity at times, to escape the torture that unrighteous men brought upon them. And they refused it, Scripture says, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. What's a better resurrection? Aren't we all resurrected in the same way? Can you be resurrected more than somebody else? What's he mean by better? Well, of course, he's talking about the eternal reward that waited for the resurrected person. Their opportunity for eternal reward was made greater by their unwillingness to compromise in their own walk, even to the point of continuing to accept torture when an escape was possible, because they desired what was eternal greater than what they might have had in the here and now. Consider that as a parallel in our own walk for whether or not to take revenge. Would you like to take revenge, have some measure of benefit in the world today, some measure of justice in the world today, but do it at the expense of a better resurrection? I'm not signing up for that. 
Because whatever I might obtain in this world is passing. Whatever God has for me in the next is not. James says all these people suffered as an example. This teaching, this basic principle of James at this point in chapter 5, is a far cry from the kind of triumphalism teaching that is dominant in the Western church today. That we are called to overcome the world, destined to conquer and make everything right. That we are the land of the free and the proud and with might and power in our constitution, we will persevere and, and the founding fathers were all Christians and the United States is God's country and blah, 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 blah. It's just nonsense. It's patriotic and I'm as much a patriot as the next guy. But if we're here to talk about this book, then we have to acknowledge it doesn't care a whit about the United States or any other country outside of Israel. We are just another Gentile nation, lost and dying, full of sinners. But that fact, has led the church to blend patriotism and, and biblical teaching in an unhealthy way such that now what we want to hear about is the way we can fight injustice and go to the polls and do this and do that. But our biblical outlook cannot be a patriotic outlook. Our biblical outlook needs to be a biblical outlook that our role in following Christ as an ambassador of Christ is to recognize our country is not in this world. We are foreigners of another country, wandering, waiting for our home to appear. And as citizens of that heavenly kingdom, we have an allegiance to that law and to that kingdom, not to the ones on earth. And as Paul says, give respect to the governing authorities. They were put in place by God. So be a good citizen. But don't let that confuse you as to where your true citizenship lies. And as Christians, consider how you respond to injustice and persecution. And use that as an example. James finally ends with Job, and I'll end on this as well. James mentions Job. We could talk all night on Job, all, all day and night on Job. I won't. I mean, I would assume most people in here have heard the story well enough already to know of the sorrow and the injustice that that man suffered through. But do you remember how it started? Satan didn't mention Job. God mentioned Job. Had God never mentioned Job to Satan, Satan probably never would have paid attention to the guy. So it's fair to say God set Job up. He put Job in Satan's lap, said, why don't you go take a shot at Job? See what comes comes of it. How do we know God isn't doing that with us? In other words, how do we know that when those things come along in our life that cause us injustice and pain and suffering and sorrow and loss and, and things that just make us mad, aren't the thing God has brought us for some test of righteousness, for an opportunity in our life for us to display the kind of faith Job displayed? Patient endurance endurance and patience and a desire to reflect righteousness even in our sorrows. You know, what could Job have done in response to his sorrows that he didn't do? The list is long. What did he do? He prayed. He mourned. He sought godly counsel, though he didn't get enough of it. And he told God that though you slay me, I yet will praise your name. That's the witness that God is asking from each of us. Taking note, as he says, of God's compassion and mercy, which he showed Job in the end. Father, we thank you, Lord, that the, the words of Scripture will bring to mind things that we should do and could do differently. But we also thank you, Father, for the examples of men like Job, who in their own walk, Father, became such a great picture of righteousness. We know that Job is no greater a man than us in the sense that his flesh was just as weak and his sin was just as great. But, Father, we know that in the mercy and in the compassion you showed him, he, would, he was able to rise to the occasion and to the test you put before him. And so, Father, we have the same faith and, and hope that we would be able to rise 
in the same manner. That you would give us, Father, the strength to face trials and difficulties, injustice, wherever it comes, and respond to it, Father, in a godly way. In some cases, Father, defending ourselves, and in some cases, taking right and proper action to restore ourselves, but in many other cases, Father, demonstrating patience and knowing the difference between the two because we listen to the Spirit. We pray, Father, you would guide us through those moments. Let us be better witnesses through them. And we ask, Father, as we finish James next week, we would continue to think through the entire letter, all that it's put in front of us, all the challenges it's asked us to confront, and that you would work those through in our life in the weeks and months to come. Thank you, Father, for this church and for this Sunday. And we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.